Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Bible Reset Podcast. This episode contains the second half of our interview with Andy Crouch on technology and reading. So if you haven't listened to the first part yet, I'd recommend going back to episode 21 and listening to that first. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy the second half of our interview with Andy Crouch. The Bible really ultimately is not meant to be read on our own. It's meant to be read in community with other people who help us see that, in fact, I am in this story. Yeah. And, and it does apply to me, right? So yep. that's not to disagree with what you said, Glenn, but just... No, another, and it's, it's right. And, and I get it. I mean, I, I totally understand. Like, people want this to be about them in a significant way. And that's a good thing. I mean, we also yes. want, want... We right. do want it to be about you. I think it's a matter of... right trusting that if you give up your demand for immediate attention to yourself yes, yes. Um, it will get back to you yes. like let it be what it is on its own terms and i think of course we want it to be relevant to your life and and we care about the details of your life the pain right. the right. joys whatever's going on in your life the bible cares about that too yeah. Um, it gets back to you in a particular way, I guess. And I think um, I think what we need is um, more encouragement from the leadership of the church to say, trust the Bible. Yeah. And that when it's yeah, when yeah. it's taken in deeply on its own terms, believe me, it will be about you. Maybe more than you want. Actually, at the end right. of the day, <laughs> it's going to not just comfort you, uh, but it has demands for you and a whole realm of things that have to do with your life. So it's about our, to me, I think it's a matter of the route by which we get back to ourselves. Totally. Totally. And, and well, two thoughts on that. I mean, I, what came to mind was the thing they say in 12-step programs, keep coming back. Mm. It works. <laughs> That's like yeah, one of the phrases right. of 12-step. Keep coming back. It works. And I think we need to be saying that to people about the Bible. Keep coming back including after the times when you're really mad at something that you read in the Bible, or, or you really were confused. I mean, I'm reading numbers right now. Um, and, you know, in our, with our modern mindset, the, the possession of the land is a very complex thing to read about, and the eradication of peoples mm -hmm. in the name of mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. uh, do I know totally how to parse all that, how to handle that? I know there's lots of people who've written about it. I could go read about it, but I'm just kind of encountering it afresh in the text. I'm like, aha, uh, I don't know if I think mm. the Amorites should be extinguished down to the last uh, woman and child, you know, and yet here's God presented as saying that, well, if I haven't been deeply shepherded to say, keep coming back, keep coming back, um, I, I will be tempted, you know, to throw the book <laughs> out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So this this time issue, um, just quickly, I don't I don't want to. We have other things to move on to for sure. But is it just a matter of um, commitment, the will, uh, maybe a community mm. of people helping you and supporting you to craft some different kind of understanding of the value of time, and mm. how to, to counteract this instantaneousness in our culture. Um, what can be done? I mean, not just for Christians in the Bible, but for people in general, in terms of the quality and depth of their life. Um, what beats this drive toward instantaneousness? Personal yeah. commitment, <laughs> community help. Is it like a 12 step thing? What, what do we do? 
So here's my here's my initial thought about that. I think it's about rewards, um, and re in a sense reprogramming, re rewiring. There's a lot of mechanical metaphors for this. Um, <laughs> reforming our expectations of how we get the good, the the sensation of good that every human body, soul, mind, and heart wants. And that's a question of rewards. And it's it's partly because we know so much now about how learning is mediated by the reward systems in our um, heart, soul, mind, strength complex. That is to say, the, the, in a way, the reason I'm with you right now is an anticipation of rewards. What's happening as you and I interact is little little signals that are being translated into neurotransmitters that say, oh, Paul looks interested right now. And so I'll keep going. <laughs> or <laughs> or also you can have negative feedback cycles. Oh, Alex is looking bored. Maybe I need to wrap up that idea. Um, oh, Glenn laughed. You know, and every one of those I is... I don't think I've been bored so far. Just, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just for illustration purposes. Attend to wisdom, young man. So every one of those little micro interactions is releasing a, a little cascade in my in my own neurochemistry um, that is causing me to press on, right? And so and then what are we doing here? Well, there is maybe some learning happening for all of us. We're kind of thinking out loud together. Let's also say there's some. Let's just think more diff, more uh, more broadly about difficulty. So. This is demanding in a way to, to do the work that we're doing, to have a conversation, to, to really listen, to follow a train of thought, to think it out. Why do I do that? Because I anticipate a kind of gift at the end of a sense that uh, it was worth it, of a sense of connection, of a sense of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. The thing about our technological world is it gives us a pathway to a very quick hit of reward anytime we want it, Right. And I can feel it even now, even though I've turned everything off, I can feel, I know I can, without even looking, I know where my phone is and I can feel it kind of gently calling to me. <laughs> There's <laughs> something easier than what you're doing right now. It'll be more rewarding, you know, uh, maybe because it's consumption rather than creation, maybe because it's mm. spectating rather than inter in, uh, interacting or, uh, you know, community being, being with people is harder than just watching people. Um, and we have so so then the the other thing is <laughs> there's a very different curve to how these rewards play out so the instant rewards start out really strong but decay very quickly so the 10th page of instagram is not nearly as rewarding as the first or the you know the 10th screen that you scroll through you're not getting nearly as much as the first um the other way that rewards work is maybe an initial impetus so we get on the on the call together and we're going to do this somewhat difficult thing together semi-difficult um but i'm like oh my friends i haven't seen you guys in a while i'm excited i, I anticipate right so I, i'm i start out kind of positive but then then we get into the conversation i'm like gosh how's this going did i really raise that right i've got a lot of things going through my mind you know because i want to be helpful to you and, and your audience so there's this like valley of difficulty where the rewards aren't as clear but then if you keep, and at that moment, you're tempted to, to turn away and do something mm. else. But if you stick with it, you get this escalating kind of compounding reward that's much more satisfying in the end than any quick hit. Now, 
reading, any kind of deep reading, even if it's reading a poem that's not long, so it's not like reading 100 pages of a novel, but even just reading a six-line poem by a really good poet, is, is the second kind of reward system. You may sit down and you think, ooh, I get to read a Wendell Berry poem today. <laughs> uh, but then you read it the first time, you're like, uh, I don't get it. Like, what? I don't, <laughs> what's going on? You know? Um, and the better the poem, the more likely it is that there are layers of it that don't reward you instantly. And so then you go into that valley of non-reward, and you have to stick there and say, it's going to be worth it. The, I, I don't know how we manage this because our world is so full of instant instant hits mm. but i do know that it's it's not just a matter of willpower that is it isn't just a matter of well i'm going to take my medicine now and do my bible reading it needs to be connected to a sense both that initial impetus somehow needs to be there i i believe enough in this that i'm going to commit to it and then you've got to have this sense if i stick with this through the valley of non-reward there's going to be something good on the other end. And you really only learn that through practice. Um, that is through multiple experiences of going through that valley and coming out with, it's related to what Mihai, Sixth Mihai calls uh, flow, right? The idea that when we really get deeply into something satisfying that fully engages us, it, it releases this sense of real, of real power the kind we're meant to have, the fullness of being, the life that really is life. That, but that comes on the other side of difficulty, boredom, um, initial distraction that you have to overcome. And you've got to believe it's there or else you'll never go through the valley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, Andy, I think that we've observed with Immerse is people have a hard time reading 10 to what? 10 or 12 pages a day, five days a week, in, in, especially in yeah. some parts of the Bible. But kind of the light at the end of the tunnel is, oh, I'm going to be able to go to a book club on Saturday. And right. like right. there's like that reward there at the end yes. of the road where I'm going to be able to contribute to the conversation or at least, you know, air my grievances about right. whatever we just read <laughs> or complain or whatever. But there's like a community element of it of I'm going to be able to come together and discuss this at some level rather than just it's up to me and I'm running this race by myself. So there is kind of that built-in reward now that you're talking about it that I feel like um helps a lot of people get through the the hardness of of reading. That's so that's so good. Yeah. I I I often put this in terms of the difference between it's not a reading metaphor but uh playing a CD back in the days when we did that pressing play on anything pressing play on Spotify YouTube whatever a uh, pressing play or playing a violin. And hmm. so pressing play instantly rewarding uh but does tend to tail off and then you go looking for something new to listen to pressing uh, playing the violin years of pain <laughs> yeah uh, some extent even physically in your little fingers uh and, yeah. but also into your ears because you don't sound good to your neighbors family cats <laughs> on the street are distressed you know it's bad news um and so why does anybody play the violin when we can have as much violin music as we want on spotify for the rest of our lives you couldn't listen to all the violin music that's already recorded and already there for you why would you ever pick up a violin and and I've decided that the basic answer, what my own children picked up these kinds of instruments, and we lived through all the pain with them when they were small. And and the basic answer, I've come to call it an encounter with joyful mastery, which is hmm. to say, you heard someone play the violin, 
at an impressionable moment in your life when you're open to challenge, open to possibility, and you said, I want, I want, I don't know how I could be that person, but I want to learn. And that's what, and then often a teacher, someone who accompanies you, uh, and your teacher often is also the the joyful master, the one who who can play that piece that you're desperately struggling to learn. They can play it. It sounds so amazing. You're like, someday I'll do that. Well, in 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 the church, in the history of of God's people, who are who are these people? I would call them the saints, right? So the saints are those who have joyfully, if I can put it this way, mastered. I'm using air quotes here. The, actually, the call to die to self and live to mm-hmm. God, and and I mean, this is ultimately about death, right? This is about death to self. Um, all good reading involves a kind of death to self. All Christian discipleship involves setting aside the claims of the self. And the saints are the ones who have gone there, done that, come out the other side. They're beautiful. They're radiant. They're magnetic. They're they're powerful in the right way. And we see their lives, and and at the right moment, if our hearts are open, we say, "I I want I want to know how to get that." Mm-hmm. And I think we need those kinds of. Um, I do like I really like what you said, Alex, about that that community along the way, you know, that's pursuing that. But I also think Christian leaders have a responsibility to introduce our congregations to to people who are who are the joyful masters of of the way of jesus and if you're not that it takes you know most of us aren't really that person i'm not that person most days (laughs) so i need to introduce my kids to people way more saintly than myself because i want them to see i'm i'm pursuing this too i'm not there yet but here's someone who for whatever reason has lived it and without without that ultimate sense which is ultimately the the only reward we're promised which is sanctification becoming like christ uh, if you're Orthodox, you take it up a step and say theosis, becoming uh, like with God in in God's life, living God's life. Without that ultimate reward, you're not going to go through that valley. Yeah, yeah. I'm listening to you talk, and I feel like um, you know I'm kind of right on the edge of this generationally, where you know Hmm. you guys grew up in different generations than I did. I got. Uh, you know, we had maybe MySpace in middle school and high school and Facebook really didn't kick in until college. Did you have um, a live journal? That's what I want to know. I didn't have a live journal. Nope. So, you know, I got a cell phone. It was, a, you know, smartphones weren't really around yet, but halfway through high school, I got a dumb phone and that yeah. sort of thing. And I feel like I'm kind of right on that cusp yeah. generationally where I can remember an era before all of this in my growing yeah. up years where we would be outside, you know throwing football around all day, that sort of thing. Do you feel like the the younger generations, the Gen Z's coming up and that sort of thing, do they feel this tension at all between mm. everything that we've been talking about? Or is this kind of crazy soundbite, Twitter, Instagram culture, all they've known, and so they don't feel any sort of tension around all this stuff? Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> we ought to have my daughter here because Amy... Has, yeah. written, has written a book about this uh, from yeah. her own perspective. She wrote it when, when she was 19 um, and she's living through it in college with all of her friends. She, if she were here, I think, I think it's fair to say she would say, Oh my goodness. They absolutely feel tension with it and great mm. distress. This is a generation of unprecedented emotional distress uh, in their daily lives. Now they don't necessarily hook yeah. it up to their technological uh, environment, but um but I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that. And, and to a great extent, they're very conscious, 
that the technology is exacerbating the worst things about their lives. Um, the, uh, oh goodness, I'm blanking on his name, but the guy who started the Center for Humane Technology, I think it's called um, Tristan Harris, uh, speaks to high school students, or or at least I heard this anecdote a couple of years ago when this was a thing I, that may have moved on. But there's this thing called uh, Snapchat streaks, where uh, every day on Snapchat with your best friends, you're supposed to check in with them, and the app actually keeps track of uh, have you have you you know just snapped your friend every day, and that's called a streak, right? And so you keep this up with your friends because that shows that you're really one of my best friends because you can only keep up streaks with so many people. So he would ask rooms full of high schoolers, how many of you uh, keep up Snapchat streaks? And every hand would go up. And then he would say, okay, close your eyes. Don't look. How many of you wish you could stop? Every hand goes up. So to me, the way Gen Z, if we want to characterize it that way, is experiencing this is as uh, the, in many ways, first, the same way all of us do, distracting and kind of uh, rewarding in certain ways, highly anxiety producing and socially compulsory. This is not something mm. I get to do. Uh, maybe in, well, when you're 12, you're like, oh, I get a Facebook or whatever. But by the time you're 15, by the time you're 19, 22, this is not something you get to do. This is something you have to do and you wish you could stop, but who's going to stop first? And a phrase that's often used, and you kind of alluded to this idea, is, uh, you know, well, this new generation, they're digital natives, right? They just, they live in this world. <laughs> and uh, it is my life mission to convince <laughs> Christian leaders there is no such thing as a digital native. No one is born saying, I wish I had a screen that would distract me, give me a sense of significance, and uh, ultimately totally miswire my reward systems. We are Every human being to this day is born looking for a face. We look for another person. Mm. We look for the mother, the father, whoever that initial bonded caregiver is, who's going to accompany us through this crazy thing called life, tell us who we are, love us when we fail, uh, all that stuff. That's what every human being is looking for. And it is not mediated. It cannot be mediated. If it is mediated, it has massive negative effects on uh, human development. And that's as true of a 19-year-old today as it was of a 19-year-old in AD 19. Um, so I really think we cannot allow ourselves to say, oh, well, this generation, they're the digital natives. Now, of course, they have a great deal of fluency and facility with this stuff uh, because kids learn very quickly and they also have to to survive socially. But that doesn't mean they like it. It doesn't mean it's good for them. And it doesn't mean that they feel like, oh, we're living in technological utopia. <laughs> I actually think my cohort, Gen X, so-called, was the worst because we were the ones who got the Steve Jobs keynotes that presented all this in the most utopian possible way. Uh, and it was all new and it was very intoxicating and we all, and to a great extent, we bought into it. But for the generation coming up now, that this is just the complex, messy, pretty unpleasant world that they live in and mm -hmm. they want out. <laughs> and COVID-19 has only uh, ratcheted that up. Like and none yeah. of my sister's friends, my, sorry, my daughter's friends uh, want to keep going to Zoom classes. You know, they're not mm. digital natives. No such thing as digital natives. Yeah. Yeah. That's a helpful. We're always at the Institute. We, we like kind of correcting language because, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg of, of culture. So it's good for you to debunk the the digital natives idea that you know, they somehow just adapt to this better than everybody else. So 
um, yeah, that's helpful. I feel like, you know, one of my favorite books and most haunting books is what you mentioned earlier, the, the shallows by Nicholas mm. Carr. And yeah. you were talking earlier and he, he says in the opening chapter of the book, something like I used to scuba dive in a sea mm. of words, but now mm. I zip along the surface, like I'm on a jet ski. Yeah. And, uh, that's, yeah. that's just stuck with me because, you know, no matter what, I could be a hundred miles away from a screen. If I've got a book on a beach, I'm still expecting to read it. Like I browse Twitter or right. you know, read Facebook or whatever. Right. Um, so jumping ahead a little bit, Philip Yancey, who's another member of our board of advisors. Yeah. I think I neglected, ne- neglected to mention at the beginning that Mandy is also on our board of advisors, which we're very grateful for. But um, Philip once told us, his take on it, which is that the modern church has created a whole culture around Bible McNuggets and assumed that they were nutritious. Oh, um, <laughs> w- would you agree with that? You know, um, oh, boy, and, and oh, if so, uh, what do you think that that whole culture is kind of cost the church in its relation to relationship to the Bible and its discipleship, all that sort of stuff? Oh boy. Oh boy. I mean, I, I loved McDuggets at a certain stage of my life, I will just right. confess. I mean, that was yep. one of my go-to. I mean, in high school, uh, at the same time as I was these amazing Bible studies, I was putting this awful stuff in my body called right. McNuggets. Right. So if a McNugget is like a fully processed representation of something that once was chicken, but is now um, homogenized, utterly predictable, there's every McNugget is the same as the last one and the next one and largely coded in things to activate your sensory reward systems that have nothing to do with the <laughs> nutritional value of the alleged chicken that is somewhere inside. Yeah. That seems like a terribly painfully accurate metaphor for what the church has tried to do with the word of God living and active like a two-edged sword <laughs> piercing <laughs> to the division of <laughs> bone and marrow. Um, Revealing the thoughts of the heart is we've, is it not honestly true that in an attempt to stay relevant to a modernizing, homogenizing, processed world that delivers very fast rewards to your body, mind, soul, that, that we tried to turn, I mean, I guess the Bible, I mean, I think the truth is we, we, it is, it is, it's not actually the Bible. It's not a whole Psalm. in like I, this morning I read Psalm 55, uh, which is the lament of someone whose very closest friend, it seems, has has turned against him, has betrayed him. The other morning I read Psalm 73, which is the guy who looks at all the sleek, prosperous, wicked, and he's like, I think this God thing doesn't work. That's the first half <laughs> of the psalm. Like, instead, we we lifted out certain ideas, reprocessed them, homogenized them. So that they all speak in kind of the same voice, in the same reassuring, superficial way, um, and then had felt like we had to coat them with lots of stuff. I mean, gosh, that just seems like a lot of successful Christianity from the last generation. Hmm. The only thing I would say is, um, I, I mean, McDonald's still has customers for sure, but, but the world is moving on. Like people don't like McNuggets the way they did when I was a kid, uh, because we started to feel icky, uh, honestly, mm. like long-term yeah. icky. <laughs> and people are rediscovering like what a tomato actually tastes like when it's grown from an heirloom variety that doesn't look as all red and shiny in the store, but actually is a tomato. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what, you know, 
so if the church does not realize that this era of homogenized process modernity is waning in in the broad culture um and we keep trying to do that i think we'll miss actually where our neighbors are at they're not looking for mcnuggets of any kind anymore and and the bible is n- never was anything like that right so mm. I yeah. think there's a chance to to realize actually our our own neighbors. I, you know, in the 1960s, I don't know. Maybe you had to serve McNuggets uh, in some metaphorical sense, but but that's not what people are hungry for now in in any way. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we tried to kind of go along with culture, creating Bible verse memes because you make memes about everything else, and maybe that's a way to get people into the Bible. But you know, other things are offering people the things that capture their imaginations and get their heart beating faster, like you know, meta narratives and stories, you know, partisan yeah. politics can offer you a story if you need one. Mm. Meanwhile, the church is just throwing mm. Bible memes at you that are kind of, yeah, Bible McNuggety, I guess. I, I read one time that um, someone said the Bible, if you're honest, is an acquired taste. Huh? Mm. I agree. Yeah. It, it's, it's not like McNuggets. Um, right. And, you know, there's complexity there. Even Peter, maybe in a moment of competitiveness, says, you know, <laughs> some things are hard to understand. Yeah. All right. <laughs> like, you know, you know, if I wanted that, I'd go to the Atlantic. You know, I'm just trying to find something to get me through the day. Uh, so, anyhow, yeah, to your point, uh, then the church caved in, I think, in a sense, and said, we'll create the culture around the McNuggets um, with the idea that at least you have something. And we'll settle for that. And, and you know what? I, I'm not even sure it's right to lay the blame at the foot of the church. It was Christian people doing it, but it was not the church primarily. It was the marketplace that responds to financial signals of what consumers will pay for. It was, it was businesses, essentially. Some of them were structures, yeah. not, not-for-profit corporations. But in fact, they were run attending to a single signal, which is profitability. and. And McNuggets can be very profitable because cheaper to produce, quicker reward, you know, all that. And I think it was it was Christian businesses, uh, whether they were styled as ministries or not, not the disciple-making community of God through the ages, handing on the faith once delivered in such a manner that 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 our children's children will still be able to hear and know the goodness of God. That that isn't who made the McNuggets. It was well-intentioned Christian people working in business frameworks who said, well, this is what the consumers, this is working. Like, and, and then they, and then they, as happens, right, you go, you take one step and you're like, oh, that was very profitable. Maybe if we do an more intense and even more McNuggety version of it, it'll be even more profitable. <laughs> so, hmm. so let's not blame the church too much. Um, yeah. Except you're, to the you're extent not, you're not intending to step on our toes, but we, <laughs> the, the people that are on this podcast, are uh, you know, you're you're the prosecutor, and we are guilty as charged. Well, well, <laughs> you, you, you catch I, my drift. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it, the only way that the church is truly culpable. It, culpable was in outsourcing our dis, the discipleship of our communities to businesses that ultimately could only truly respond to market signals and thinking that because the kids were purchasing the McNugget study Bible, uh, that they were disciples. Um, 
it, 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 the only real failure of the church proper was just to be misled into thinking this was the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this book, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, um, called The Destroyer of the Gods by Christian historian Larry Hurtado. And he taught, he has a chapter in there about the the bookishness of the early church in, as you mentioned earlier, a Roman era society where low literacy rates, uh, sacred texts were not the norm. Um, and so just kind of the weirdness of of the early church and their commitment to knowing a set of texts, especially a lot of them Gentiles who had no familiar, familiarity with the, the First Testament. Yeah. Um, and just kind of that super countercultural commitment to do that in a society that was not kind of flowing that way, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, how do you think the church can be similarly countercultural in a... Uh, easy reward system culture, highly digitized, uh, culture that, that, as you mentioned earlier, rewards, uh, you know, quick hit impulses and and that sort of thing, uh, by, you know, inviting people back into reading and Uh, long form reading and and helping them, uh, recover that ability. Is there a way for for the church going forward? (laughs) You know, by the way, I was thinking, uh, the, the, the Greco-Roman world, the, the Roman Empire had memes actually uh, in the forms of hmm. coin, in the form of coins. It, it had uh, like compressed visual communication about what mattered in the world, which was Caesar. <laughs> and and those, if you study Roman coins, you know like every detail of how the, his hairstyle, the, the the profile, was all designed to communicate messages about what mattered, and everybody could read it and see what what the new fashion was and what the new emphasis was just from the hmm. coin. So the, the that word was flooded with memes, you could say, um, and indeed the church offered a different way. So here's the thing: I and this is where maybe this here we bump up against the limits of your organization and its mandate in Super Bible mm-hmm. reading. Yes, yeah. yes, we want people reading, but <laughs> I don't think I don't think the place to start is, dear dear friend and neighbor, I'm inviting you into long form reading. I, right. Right. What caused those Gentiles to want to go read those unfamiliar Jewish texts from this little marginal people down there, way away from the center of things? <laughs> um, it was, it, I mean, not to be, this word is so hard to say without being sacred. It was that they had been loved, right? It was that they had hmm. experienced love in action. Whether it was your Christian neighbor who stayed in the city when the plague came and everyone else left, and your neighbor brought you food and water, and just that basic level of nursing care meant that you survived while other people didn't. Um, Whether it was that you were trying to scrape together uh, enough money to pay for your own burial, so you were joining these burial societies, uh, but then you found out that your neighbor just would be given a gracious, dignified burial by his friends in, in in this thing, this fellowship of the way. Without having to pay, and that even if he was indigent, they would bury him with the same dignity as if he was wealthy. And you were like, "Wait, how can I? What? What is that? Like, how does that kind of community work?" Right. So mm-hmm. I'm not talking about love in terms of sentimentality. I'm talking about love in action, the care for people in in situations of great stress and distress that was offered by the followers of the way to their neighbors. It, that's the way in. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and then where did you get this? Well, guess what? We do some weird things. Uh, I mean, 
I say in the TechWise family, the first thing, uh, the, 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 one of the things you need to say like early and often in every family is our family is different. Like your kids just need to hear from day one, our family is different. Yes, your friends have video games. Our family is different. Yes, you know, they got a phone when they were three. Our family is different, right? Yeah. Well, the church says then and now to its neighbors, well, our family is different. And one of the things we do is that you may never have done this before. You might have only done it in college or, you know, when you took an English class in high school, but we actually read. <laughs> and here's what we're reading and we'll help you. And it's going to be confusing and it's not going to be that rewarding at first, but just keep coming back. It works. But, but the invitation is not to reading. Um, the invitation is, is to the life of love and sacrifice and service and grace and all that stuff. And, and then, uh, what is, what does this unique family do? Um, well, going back to our Jewish older brothers, uh, it turns out being part of this family means you read. Hmm. Yeah. Reminds me of that book. Start with why yes. <laughs> you, you kind of start with, yeah, the underlying, uh, reason for doing it all rather than completely. Uh, yeah. I, I agree, Andy, that, um, love won the day. Um, but this this group of people, you know, in the second century or so that Hurtado writes about, they were pragmatists as well, hmm. and you know they were they were the ones that were instrumental in the creation of the codex of moving yes, yes. from from Very schools true. to the book. So, right. if we want people to engage this story, um, then we hmm. then we have to simplify some things, you know, and we we feel like. We've done some of that. Uh, mm. we've, we feel like we've, we're trying to be culture makers. We created a Bible in six volumes. Right, right. Uh, we, we created it in a way, uh, you know, that somebody riding on the subway in New York City wouldn't feel embarrassed to be yep. carrying around some big tome with Holy Bible written, written on the mm -hmm. cover. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, I so think... I can tell you there's... I, I'm hardly ever in a subway car in New York without someone with a traditional Bible open on their lap. Uh, it, so mm. it hasn't totally gone away, but I totally yeah, get what you're yeah. saying. And I think Good it's a wonderful them. innovation that you've done. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the reality is, is that uh, as you so eloquently talk about in your book, that culture making needs to be, uh, I don't know if you would call it a discipline of the church, but it needs to be an aspiration. Yes, totally. Uh, of the church. And you you see it, you know, even in somebody like Luke's uh, introductory remarks uh, in, in mm. uh, it's the book of Luke. He he says, you know, many have attempted to write uh, an account of uh. Jesus. And he's, you know, hinting at the fact that they either failed or what they wrote was <laughs> incomplete. Right, right. But I have something to add. And so I've researched, yeah. uh, you know, he's done a lot of hard work. Yeah, and he's looking to present it in a way that will appeal. Oh, completely to, to these first-century readers. Yeah, uh, and and try to uh, get them introduced to, to Jesus. So, you know, culture making I think is a big part of of our challenge today in you know, the the modern era as we're seeking to get people to uh, connect with this ancient book. All right, Andy. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This has been super educational for me, I know. And uh, and I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. And it's just so fun to, you know, kind of merge your expertise with technology and, and reading culture along with your expertise in, in culture making and reforming culture and that sort of thing. So uh, 
sounds like we've got an uphill climb to get people uh, to kind of reframe their expectations for the Bible a little bit, but uh, but it's a good climb to be on, I would say. And we're we're grateful for your arm around us as we and as we try to do this work. Oh man, I'm so honored uh, to be part of it in a small way, and you know. Uh, a lot of my work is just to try to put into words what, what is happening and what could be done, but you guys are actually doing what could be done, which is much harder <laughs> <laughs> and you're creating and bringing things into the world. And I just admire what you're doing very, very much. And it encourages me so much. So yeah. thanks well, for the chance to talk. Yeah. Appreciate that. Um, to our listeners, we'd certainly encourage you to get your hands on any of Andy's books, uh, which I'll link to in the description. My wife, Lacey, and I recently read The TechWise Family, found it to be extremely helpful and, and also hopeful in, in crafting an intentional life with technology. So thanks again, Andy. This was great. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one.